But I mean, that, that's one of the problems of, of regulators, right? They, they do what they can to protect the consumers. But frankly speaking, most of the time what they're doing is hurting the economy more than it actually protects the consumers. Because yeah. as I said, not, none of the pieces of regulation that we have right now and are going to have in the foreseeable future would prevent the big things like FTX, FTX, Luna and, and whatnot. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. What is up, everyone? I am your host, Charlie Shrem, and you're listening and watching another epic episode of The Charlie Shrem Show, powered by Waxman. We're together twice a week, sometimes more, sometimes less, but for the past four years, twice a week, we get to dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders, not just, you know, influencers like other podcasters put on, but actual leaders, actual people that are building out products and companies the CEOs of the products and the services that you're probably already using, but you want to understand like what they do, how they work, and where they fit into the ecosystem. Because as you guys know, we're not just a normal industry here. Although a lot of times these people have never met, we're all part of this like decentralized, interconnected infrastructure, new ecosystem that will eventually take over the whole world. And we're building it out now. So we're all part of this net and it's good to know who these people are, how they work, what is going on in the space, all these different cool communities and ecosystems. I know all of our minds are blown every single day. Today's guest, I'm really excited to introduce you to Bernard Blaha. He serves as the CEO of the People's SCE, which operates this really cool ecosystem of e-credits. And before, before launching e-credits, he was the CEO of, of a company that I've used and a bunch of you guys have heard of called blocktrade.com for a little over a year. He's a board member of the Digital Asset Association in Austria. And now he's a founder and CEO of the People's SCE, which operates this whole ecosystem of a decentralized merchant user network of like reinventing the whole payment rails, credit card systems that we use today, but through this mechanism of like, hey, I'm a customer. I want you to accept this, this e-credit system. I want to be able to accept cryptocurrency, sign you up, and you build from like you build from this ground up this really really cool network of like this I guess you would call it like democratizing finance, empowering local businesses, because you're enabling people to like make everyday purchase with your with your cryptocurrency, but also all the the merchants are involved too, and you allow people to have votes and it's like this whole democratic payment rails ecosystem that I'm excited to like dive deep and hear what's going on. But how did you get involved in in the crypto space? But how I got involved in crypto space is actually kind of by accident. So there is this game, and back then, uh, that was in 2014-ish, I still had some time to play some computer games. And there's this big crowdfunded game called Star Citizen. I'm not sure if you know it, but essentially it was the biggest crowdfunding project ever back then. And at some point, I was interested to see what the environment around it looked like. Essentially, I, I, made, I opened this Wikipedia page with the biggest crowdfunding projects of all time. Oh. And there was this big list. And while that game was still number one, there were a lot of uh, crypto projects creeping up. And I looked into that and I, at first I thought, okay, what is that? Yeah. And after a while, then Ethereum joined that list and actually made it to the top of the list. Uh, overtaking Star Citizen. And, and so that became quite interesting because I'm 
I'm a nerd. I'm a big nerd. So whenever I see new technology coming up, I look into it and try to understand it. And what got me interested about this one is ever since I've gone to school and ever since I founded my first company and ever since I started doing anything at all, basically, I've been on the intersection between technology. So I'm, I, I used to be a programmer. I wouldn't dare to program anything nowadays. Yeah. But I also have a deep understanding of economics. And so I, I, I was like, that's, that's exactly what I'm doing. That's exactly what I can do. Let's look into that. And I found out that there's actually quite a ton of advantages that, that we can use this technology for and to change the world with that technology. And back then, I didn't have the picture. I'll admit that I was, I was watching it from quite a distance. And I thought, okay, that might be interesting in the future. Maybe I'll look into that later on and I'll keep watching it. But over the months following that and up until 2016, when I started my first company that was really focused on blockchain, pretty much every single month, something happened where I thought, okay, that is really interesting. I should get into that deeper and deeper. And so 2016, I then started my first company that was really focused on a blockchain project after having looked into it since 2014, sometimes more intensely, sometimes less so. And yeah, that's, that's essentially the short story of, of how I got into cryptocurrencies in the first place, just by opening a random Wikipedia page about the largest crowdfunding projects out there. That's how pretty much like everyone how everyone got involved in Bitcoin and crypto in the early days is that like you just found some random chat room or a website that talked about it in some way that was unique to you. One of the first Bitcoin exchanges that no one remembers was actually founded in Austria. I think they're still around called Verwox.com, V-I-R-W-O-X. Oh, Verwox is closed in 2020. But Verwox operated for more than 12 years first as a place to buy and sell Linden dollars for Second Life before Bitcoin existed, pre. And then in April 2011, I flew over to Vienna. Actually, it was, it was Linz. And I met with Frank Kapp, the creator of Verwax. And actually, I met a few people who I think could be potentially Satoshi during that, that same trip to Austria. That's where I met Gavin Andreessen for the first time, the creators of Bitstamp. I met Amir Taki, who ended up founding like Dark Market and Intersango and some of the earlier Bitcoin exchanges. And then April 2011, Verwox created this mechanism where you can buy Bitcoin with Linden dollars too. So they allowed people to essentially buy Bitcoin with dollars in Europe because they were already operating this like Linden dollars was this in-world currency just for Second Life. And I played a lot of Second Same. Life. And then yeah, Mt. Gox closed in 2014. And Verwox was a huge was a huge contributor to my own business at that instant too. I just always felt that the European regulatory market was a lot more like welcoming for financial service companies in the Bitcoin and crypto space. I'll get back to that in a second. But uh, <laughs> <You're> like, <"What?" laughs> let's see if I agree. I'm not sure myself yet. Uh, but yeah, essentially what, what I think is quite interesting, you mentioned Second Life and like the, the way things are getting together from... I, to be honest, I don't know when Second Life started. It must be like 2008-ish. Something like that, yeah. So, something like that. I don't know. A long time ago, essentially. And now everything's kind of coming together because essentially what the, what the whole metaverse feels like is like Second Life 2.0. So would it be Third Life? I don't know. All the things that we saw back then that were just puzzle pieces coming together now, like a decade, more than a decade, one and a half decades later. That's quite interesting to see. And regarding the regulatory landscape in, in the European Union, I actually have, have uh, quite a funny story. I don't think I've, I've told that very often in the, in the past. But when we started, the, the first cryptocurrency company that I built in 2016 
which uh, back then was called uh, Herosphere and the cryptocurrency was the Herocoin. We actually tried to do the first ICO that was done from a, a European Union country. Mm. So until then, there was a lot of, of um, ICOs that had been done from Switzerland uh, and from, from other non-EU countries. But the European Union regulators, they were quite careful in, in touching that matter. And essentially what happened is we have that thing, and back then I was still living in Austria, now I'm living in Luxembourg, but we talked to the, the Austrian regulator and they have that thing they call a fintech form. Essentially, you are supposed to send some thing that you're planning to do there. And within a couple of weeks, you're supposed to get a legally binding reply. And so mm. we sent it there and told them, hey, we would like to do an ICO. And back then in 2016, 2017, of course, that was the, the, the years ramping up to that, right? Yeah. And essentially, after a couple of weeks, I think after two months or so, they got back to us and told us, yeah, that's quite interesting, but it's going to take quite a while until we can actually answer that. So uh, yeah, please have some patience. And we didn't have patience because we wanted to get that product on the road. And also economically, we couldn't just wait for another half year. That just doesn't work in my yeah, you world. you can't here. just sit around. No, I can't do that. Like I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm losing focus then. And so essentially what we found out, and that was actually a great idea of one of our lawyers that we then implemented is we went to the regulator and told them, hey guys, we're doing this thing here. It's called an ICO and we think it's highly illegal. So maybe you could check if what we're doing is actually illegal. And so essentially we reported ourselves for illegal business conduct. And if the regulator gets that, they're way faster in looking into these things. And so after, I think it was like less than a month, they came back to us and told us, and I have to explicitly say here, otherwise they're going to be mad at me again. It was not a non-action letter. They just said that they don't see any reason to investigate this matter further. And so that was kind of the baby steps on how we got the, the European Union regulators to even look into that matter and understand that matter and what, what even is the cryptocurrency stuff and, and, and whatnot. And it, it was quite a risky move back then, but we were just about to start this company with the, with the blockchain topic. So, hey, why not do it? Uh, and to this day, it's also the reason why whenever these, you know, the compliance questions, have you ever been under investigation by a regulator? I always have to say, yes, I have actually. <laughs> and nothing came of it. Well, yeah, that's, that's the story behind that. And we have come a long way since. So, um, I mean, the, the, the latest moves in the European Union, or hopefully soon to be actual moves in the European Union with the Mika and everything, um, when that started, uh, the, the process on how that works in the European Union, I'm quite impressed by that, honestly speaking. So I, the, the first time I started really working with regulators was in 2016. And when you get into that, you always have the picture of the regulators being like those those uh, big bad guys, guys in a bad mood in suits and they just want to stop what you're doing because innovation <laughs> yeah. could be a risk and so don't do that. That's actually, it's, it's the complete opposite. Like they have a wealth of knowledge that I was, and to this day, I'm still very impressed by. And uh, essentially, they really work with you to understand it. And also the processes of getting new regulations done in the European Union, that's quite nice because you can give a lot of feedback and we did give a lot of feedback. But there's one thing, and that's why I don't, I cannot agree 100% with what you said of the European Union regulators being very welcoming. Um, in that feedback process, if you, if you look at that, that's, that's all public, so you can look at that. Uh, when the Mika feedback process started, the majority of feedback that came in 
was from traditional finance, from banks and from financial institutions. And historically and logically, they're quite careful, let's call it that way, or like, like, uh, kind of risk-averse when it comes to these new technologies because they're essentially disrupting their business fields, right? And so what happened and what Mika, in my opinion, is right now is a better classification paper. So yes, we have, we've come a long way. And yes, Mika is good. It's good that we have it. But it could have been so much more. It could have been uh, more technologically neutral than it is nowadays. Uh, it could have given more proper guidance. And my biggest criticism, and that is something that a lot of, uh, let's call it hardcore cryptocurrency and blockchain enthusiasts uh, don't like me saying, but what it could have done is it could have given proper guidance on how to protect user funds on centralized entities. And the, the biggest keyword of the past year there, of course, is FTX. Yeah. Mika would not have prevented FTX. Mika would not have prevented the, the whole Luna disaster. And the reason why it wouldn't have is because it does not give any guidance whatsoever on how to handle user funds in the manner that FTX or Luna handled user funds. And that is where I feel we're lacking quite a lot. And that is going to lead into some trouble. And that is why I said in the past, the European Union might become the leader of regulation with Mika. That is why I don't think we are the leader of regulation right now. I'm really excited that this podcast, The Charlie Shrem Show, is now powered by Waxman. I think I met the CEO, David Waxman, back in 2015 or something at an Ethereum meetup, and he told me that the future belongs to the fearless. And that is why they are producing the show right by my side. What an amazing team we have now. It's so amazing. You guys have been hearing some great updates and following along. If you don't know, Waxman is the leading global strategy and communications firm advising the next generation of companies in Web3, disruptive technology, Bitcoin, crypto, fintech, artificial intelligence, and venture capital. Waxman's clients are ambitious leaders and businesses that are on the frontier of this whole new economy because they really do believe that the future belongs to us and we're the ones building it. With services across everything from digital marketing, public relations, social media, investor relations, financial communications, recruiting, and public affairs, they're helping companies and individuals like myself seize the business opportunities that we deserve, overcome challenges that we all are gonna face and achieve sustained success. Head over to Waxman to learn more. You guys are gonna love them. We have them in the show notes. Check it all out. It's W-A-C-H-S-M-A-N.com. That's W-A-C-H-S-M-A-N.com. So, so look, I, I think like you agreed with me and you disagreed with me yeah. at the same time. In the United States right now, it's, and, and, I'm, and I'm putting my venture capitalist hat on. I uh, have an early stage VC fund. We've invested in, well, Druid Ventures, we've invested in like 10 companies in the last 12 months early stage ventures around like six figure checks. So I, I'm talk, I'm like on the ground floor with American, and actually we don't just invest in American companies, we invest in half our portfolio companies are, are not based here in, in the US, but starting a company in the United States right now, Bitcoin or crypto company is very scary. Forget the fact that there are no federal, federal regulations. You have to deal with like a hodgepodge of state regulations 
And then if the state regulators, even they're okay with you, you got a bunch of different federal agencies that are constantly competing with each other. Then dealing with Senate and congressional hearings, it's like it's like a Soviet Union over here where you hear the old stories of like, you know, the different Soviet agencies competing with each other in Cold War books. That's how it feels like now with the different regulatory agencies in the United States. So you got that going on. And then in po- I don't know if you've heard of Operation Choke Point 2.0, but if you ever, you know, if you're walking by the bank and you say the word Bitcoin, they're going to shut your bank account down. Almost every, there's almost no way to buy and sell Bitcoin in the United States right now, other than MoonPay and Coinbase that I found. It's almost impossible. There are a few different, there are a few different Bitcoin and crypto banks left. Have I said there's no regulation? Operation Choke Point 2.0 is it's what it's called. They were choke pointing me back in 10 years ago when my Bitcoin exchange, we had to have like a new bank account every month. And here we're talking about this Mika, this Mika thing. And so for the listeners, we're talking about this, this muchly debated markets in crypto assets regulation that's expected to enter around now, like early 2023. But it's this huge, like European level, like, it's not perfect. And, and, and I want to talk about it because I don't know much about it and we'll break it down. But you're talking about like, like it's going to regulate almost all aspects of crypto, except for, like you said, custodializing customer assets. What do you think about what I just said? Um, it's kind of true. Uh, so may, maybe let's look a bit at the history of, of how crypto regulations came along over the past years. So we had that thing and we still have it because Mika is not in right. effect yet. But we have, we have the thing called a VASP, a virtual asset service provider, which is uh, supposed to be a, re- a registration. Uh, although some countries, most notably Estonia, call it a license, which in my opinion yeah. is wrong. But it's like a translation thing. Interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure if it's a translation thing as much as a marketing thing, because what they have done quite successfully with that is they have gotten a lot of the the business of virtual asset service providers into their country uh, for a while. Oh until yeah, I remember. Out again. <laughs> uh, so so the the problem with that is there is no unified guideline on what a virtual asset service provider registration should be. And so every single country has done their own thing. And while most of them ended up being Mm. the same thing, it's only, strictly speaking, valid for that one specific country. So you're getting a VASP registration here in Luxembourg, for example. The BaFin in Germany, the regulator in Germany, doesn't care about it a single bit. Same thing about any other country. So a VASP registration is only valid for that one country. Now, that's a problem you don't really have uh, in, to that extent in the US, but in the European Union, uh, that strictly speaking means you can only operate in that one single country in the European Union. So now you have to go ahead to every single country in the European Union and sign up for a VASP registration, which is a lot, a lot of bureaucracy. I can tell you that. Why do other and- financial service companies don't have to do that? If you're a traditional like bank or neobank or something, you don't have to do that, right? I'll come to that in a second. Okay. Okay. Uh, and and essentially, essentially, um, these registrations, like it's a registration. What what does registration mean? You should go to the regulator and you should tell the regulator, hey, here I am. I'm doing that kind of business. You have my contact details here. You have a business description here. You have all the details that you want from my side. Here you go. And that should be done. Should be a process of let's be generous, a couple of months. But the thing is. In every single European Union country that I know the process of, it doesn't take 
a couple of weeks. It doesn't take a couple of months. It takes roughly a year or more if you get it. And that, of course, is driving business out of the European Union, because then everybody ends up saying, why would I do that for every single European Union country? Spend a year, get all the documentation, get through all the bureaucracy, uh, and that's a mess. And the reason, and to answer your question here, the reason why this is the case is because it is a registration and not a license. Because a license is usually in some way standardized by the European Union. There's a couple of different ways on how that can be done, but it's kind of standardized. And that means it can be passported. So I can say, uh, I can go to the German regulator and tell them, hey, I do have a license, of, for example, a PSP, a payment service provider license, or some kind of MIFI II license, markets in whatever, some, some license um, in Luxembourg. And I would like to use that in Germany. And the German regulator would go ahead and essentially, that's the short version of it, go ahead and say, okay, you have the license in Luxembourg. You can also use that in essentially oh, all of the European so Union, specifically the, in Germany. It works? Like you can do that? Yeah, yeah. Essentially, with any license, you can do that. And that, that's the problem here. A VSP registration is not a license, so you cannot do that. And that led to that whole mess we're in. And Mika is going to fix that to some extent, but... The, the harm has been done already. So a lot of companies have gone bankrupt uh, because they just couldn't get through the process. A lot of companies have said, okay, we're not going to do that from the European Union. We're going somewhere offshore. And yeah, that, that's why I do How agree. Does a company like Bitpanda operate? They're, they're also based in Austria and they're one of the largest in Europe, right? Yeah. Uh, so I've, I've been back in, I think it was 2016. I've been talking to them quite a lot because that's when the Austrian regulators started getting into that topic. And I still remember the exact wording that Eric Demot, one of the founders of Bitpanda, told me. Well, as usual with regulation, you're just going to work with what you have. And when they change it, we're going to adapt. And uh, that, is, that is what we're doing. And that works for them because they've been early. They've made their money before regulations even became that big of a topic. So it's for, for them, it kind of <laughs> plays into their hand, right? I think um, I said the same it, thing, by the way, in 2012, but I ended up going to prison. So I don't know if it works all the time. <laughs> okay, that, that, that's a fair point. But yeah, it, it has to be said, like, I, I'm not sure what quota it is, but I think Bitpanda is yeah. having PayPal a two-digit two percentage. Yeah, exactly. Launched, sorry? Uh, yeah, they're having a two-digit percentage of their workforce just working on regulation and compliance. So PayPal is the same way, I agree. Uh, and they launched, so, there was no yeah. regulations for like money transmitter in the United States, but they just were able to like apologize and get them when they came out. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, that, that's one of the problems of, of regulators, right? They, they do what they can to protect the consumers. But frankly speaking, most of the time, what they're doing is hurting the economy more than it actually protects the consumers. Because yeah. as I said, not, none of the pieces of regulation that we have right now and are going to have in the foreseeable future would prevent the big things like FTX, FTX Luna, and, and whatnot. So for your business... You're going to be one of the first people to apply for the European-wide license because for your business, you're essentially creating new payment rails called e-credits. So it's not just how you pay from the consumer, but it's also the merchant that has a new, new hardware, new technology. And then you're creating like a relationship there of demand, which is like a big chicken and egg problem. But here you are now and you've launched this whole ecosystem. So what are some numbers? And, and how many merchants and, and, and give us some like behind the scenes. Yeah, uh, slight correction before that. We are probably not going to apply for that uh, license oh. for, for Mika. And the reason for that, is, for that is we're just not covered by it. <laughs> we, try, we try to, I would like to, but we're just not covered by it. 
Uh, and so no need and no reason and no possibility actually for us to apply for it. Probably better, yeah. Works out better for you. Yeah, I, I guess it kind of does because it means less bureaucracy, but I would have liked to because I, I've been working on that, uh, on contributing and, and delivering feedback to Mika for quite a couple of years now. But yeah, uh, so yeah, uh, actually, I, I think in about 10 days from recording this, we're going to have our one year anniversary of launching eCredits. Happy anniversary. Thank you. Quite proud of what we have achieved. So it's it's not my first company that I founded. And so I, I'm quite proud of when I look at these numbers. So essentially in the past year, uh, we've managed to ramp up uh, about 100,000 active customers uh, that are using that are using e-credits on a monthly basis. Uh, we are, to be honest, I don't know the current number, probably we're at 2,500, 3,000 uh, merchants that are accepting wow. e-credits, which uh, to be honest, and I'm, I'm very open with that, looking at, for example, PayPal, that's nothing. But looking at, at essentially the, the industry that we are in and the cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, building that. And I know you've had some yeah. involvement in Dash as well, like which kind of had a similar goal when they when they set off with that with that uh, Dash story. Um, but looking at that industry, I'm I'm really happy with where we are right now. And what makes me happy, like the first thing I do every day when thank you for saying that get, getting up is uh, I, I look at the map of businesses that are accepting um, that are accepting e-credits. And like, if you look at Italy, for example, that map is blue. You don't see Italy, you see e-credits there. And that's quite an achievement for, for a year that we are online. And so, yeah, I, also, also regarding Dash, I've been a great Dash supporter. And this is essentially where this whole thing came from, right? Uh, wow. where we said we really want to get uh, people to use cryptocurrencies on a daily basis. I still remember that the Dash... Uh, That's I, why I like Dash too, is like that original, it felt like the early days of Bitcoin when Dash first came out because it was yeah. all about getting regular people to use it. And it's like, it seems like now, no, there's no, there's no like, there's no, re, I can't like, there's no light bulb that makes people excited right now. I try, we talk on the show for all really cool things, but it's still not like the early days of Bitcoin or like Dash where you, people got excited about. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's amazing. I remember all the Dash meetups, but you're absolutely right. Does It does not feel like the early days anymore. And of, of course, you've been in there much longer than I have. But even when, when I looked into that 2014, it felt like the Wild West and it felt like a bunch yeah. of idealists getting together and trying to build something together. And then again, I mean everybody's talking about us being in a bear market or not being sure if that is still a bear market or already a bull market or a bull trap or whatever you want to call it. But look at where we've come from. Look at where we are today. It's amazing. Like this is, everybody's talking about cryptocurrencies really and blockchain beautiful. becoming mainstream. I know. But really we are, we're almost there. We're like this close to being mainstream. I know. And you got this like, looks like a nice fun community of people that are involved here too. How, how do, what type, like, and this is unique, like a lot, and this is what could be exciting for people, but what, what sort of governance do you have? What sort of governance would you really need for token holders where they can like vote with their weight? Yeah, that, that, that's an, that's an excellent uh, question. And that's one of the big things about e-credits and the people's SCE. So I, um, should, should I explain the term DAO, decentralized autonomous organization, or are we good with that on this podcast? We, 
No, please. Yeah, we talk about it so much, but they, the listeners love hearing new explanations of things and analogies and stuff like that. And then I'll, then I'll try to come up with a new one, essentially. So a decentralized autonomous organization is, or at least my definition of that, is a company that does not have any single person controlling it, but rather it has a community that is acting like the management board of that company, meaning you don't have a controlling shareholder. You don't even necessarily have an executive management board. You don't necessarily have a CEO, uh, but it's completely decentralized. It is as decentralized as a company can go. And you can you can take that as far as you want. So a couple of years ago, I played with the idea of a company, uh, a decentralized autonomous organization, not having any kind of uh, decision freedom, but only having hard-coded decisions made. And like that would mean... Yeah, essentially a constitution that it could not get away from whatsoever. And that would mean people could just go ahead and say, uh, back then I was very much uh, an, an Ethereum shill and I still am, to be honest. Um, and people would just go ahead and say, I'll put, I don't know, 100 Ethereum into the DAO. And once the DAO has enough money uh, to buy new real estate, it goes out. It essentially does a uh, what you call it, like a, an advertisement saying, I'm looking for yeah. real estate. And then it essentially has the contract work, Cody's Law. So it's not an actual physical contract, but it is a, a written piece of software and it buys real estate. And then it pays out to the people according to what they paid in. And when it has enough money, uh, because more people invested in it, it goes and buys more real estate. And it could do all of that. I mean, there's a lot of bureaucracy in the way of that. But theoretically speaking, it could do all of that without having a single person managing it, without being an actual proper, properly set up company. Uh, and just being completely decentralized and even pseudonymous for that matter. And that is essentially... It doesn't even have to be... It doesn't have to start like really big too. Like what you're talking about, just getting like, you know, 20 people together to put in $100,000 each and then be able to to purchase a few properties for $2 million. But you have like the constitution preset. Like it doesn't have to be a $50 million thing. It could, yeah. These DAOs should just start as like friend investment clubs or like things like that or exactly. family situations. Yeah, they shouldn't be, in my opinion, at least. And, and they could start small and that's a big thing because they don't have any overhead, right? If you, if you start a fund or, or a real estate investment trust, yeah. trying to do the same thing, you're going to have like a ton of overhead. You, you cannot even start the thing below, I don't know, a value of at least 40 million because the overhead is just going to eat up all the funds. So You're anyway, what, right. what, what, what we tried to do is we, we looked into that and said, okay, DAOs have a couple of big problems. One of them is they could still be owned by one single person. Like they could, if there's any decision freedom in the DAO, it could still be one person that just spends a lot of money and is then a whale in the DAO and they could influence what happens to the funds of everybody else involved as well. It's one of the problems. Also, it cannot, how, do you prevent, how do you prevent whales then? Uh, in our case, and Okay, maybe let's switch to what, what exactly we are doing. Uh, we built a DGO, we call it a DGO, um, which stands for Decentrally Governed Organization, which is a legal entity. It's a legal person. It's an actual company. You find us on the company register and everything. But what we do is we have a one person, one share, one vote rule, meaning every person that would like to join can purchase one, and that's at a fixed price, one share of the company, which and not more, not less. It's always exactly one share, which gives them exactly one vote, and that means they and with that they are the owners, 
they can vote for the supervisory board. They can subsequently also vote for the management board. And they can actually influence all the decisions that are being made on a daily basis. And because we have the restriction, which on the other hand, that's, we're, we're not perfect. We're not making everything better because that means we have yeah. to identify the people. So we're not anonymous. Uh, that's one of the downsides compared to the DAO. But we identify the people, meaning we can say, okay, every person there only has one share, not more, meaning nobody can disproportionately be represented in that organization. And so everybody that is in there has exactly the same voting rights. I don't care if you're a billionaire. I don't care if you, which by the way, I do not recommend, uh, if you just scrap together the rest of your money to get into that company and have your single vote and your single share. Everybody has exactly the same voting rights. And that, in my opinion, is the most democratic you can get in a decentralized organization because everybody is literally exactly the same value. I love that. That's really, really cool. What's, what type of votes have you done? Uh, well, actually, we're just rolling out the first couple of votes. So we're in the, in the vote testing phase. Um, and essentially, we've done a couple of product-related votes where we're saying, what would you like us to focus on next? And right now, for example, ju just two days ago, uh, we, we got the results of a, of a vote that said, we want you to focus on getting in more merchants because the one thing that is preventing me from using e-credits more is you having more merchants. And that is the kind of votes we've been doing so far. However, um, in the next two and a half months, uh, we're going to have the delegate system set up. And the delegate system is where it really gets interesting because, of course, hmm. when you have, in our case, it's it's not, not a massive amount, but still we have about 300 or so uh, members right now, meaning 300 single votes, uh, which, by the way, we're not pushing that because we're not earning anything from having more members. We don't have any yeah. benefits. We just want to give the influence. So a lot of people that are using e-credits on a daily basis don't even know about that. But nevertheless, we have 300 users in there. And just imagine, uh, we are obliged to have all the members at the, represented at the General Assembly of that company. Just imagine a General Assembly with 300 one-vote uh, members in there. That would end up a mess. And now imagine what that's going to look like in a couple of years, where we're going to have 10,000 or tens of thousands not working. So what we have established is a, a delegate system where everybody can vote uh, to have their vote delegated to a person that they trust, which they can actually have kind of an election for. Yeah. And they will actually be included into the into the daily business of the People's SCE very tightly. Like every step that we're doing, they will know about it. Every expense that we're having, they will be able to see it. Everybody else will as well, but they will be able to see it live essentially. Every decision that we're making on a strategic, on an operative basis, they will be able to tell their opinion. And they're representing the entire community which is um, what we're going to start in June. And the interesting thing about that is, and that, that it, it, it's an experiment, but if people don't like what I, as the CEO, am doing with the company and where I'm bringing this company, they're going to vote me out. And that's fine. Yeah. And I love seeing that because that means it's flying, right? It's doing what it's supposed to do. It's getting the community's opinion. It's getting the people that the community thinks are the right people for that specific position and it's going to drive the company in the direction yeah. that the community thinks it should be driven. And I'll do my best, of course, to do what the community wants. But if at some day, for whatever reason, I'm incapable of doing that, the community will take over. 
and I will have no say in that. And that's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> I saw I saw someone's Twitter profile where they were like on their Twitter profile they said I'm the first CEO fired by a DAO or something. I said I, I would be proud of that too, right? Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> um, well, Bernard, there's a lot of merchants listening to the show right now, and so merchants like if you want to sell your products and services to a community that's out there that want to use their e-credits, go check them out. We'll have all the links in the show notes. Bernard, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the show today. Charlie, thank you for having me it here. Pleasure. It was absolutely amazing. And by the way, if I if I may, just the three things that I'm always using to introduce e-credits to the merchants, we're not competing with cryptocurrencies usually, we're competing with credit cards. And it's very easy to do that, right? Because we're cheaper, we're faster, and we're much more secure than credit cards. And that should be enough for every merchant to at least look at it, right? I mean, you sold me the first words you said. I, and, and while we were doing the research for the show, it's there's a lot there's a lot of really cool products and services out there, but I haven't seen one where it's like you're not just like adding on another cryptocurrency, but it's a huge community at the same time. But thank you for, for coming on the show today. Thank you, Charlie. It was an absolute pleasure. <laughs>